Hey, this is Tyler Johnson, pastor of Mission Church located in Walnut Creek, California. I want to say thank you for tuning in. I hope this podcast inspires you, encourages you, and helps you live the life God called you to live. Enjoy. All right. Good morning, Mission Church. We are grateful for the AC this morning. Amen. Oh, man. I was in Stockton yesterday. It was 104 in the shade. And my daughter is out there again this morning playing softball, and I'm happy to be here with you. Um, But I am on on all kinds of levels, just so grateful, grateful. I I say this all the time, but um, I just am always struck by the blessing that it is for God to allow me to share from his word with his church, and I love being able to do that with my favorite church, my home church, Mission Church, so thank you guys for always the warm welcome, and um, again, I'm just happy to be here, blessed to be here. I'm going to ask you a couple questions. If you're taking notes or typing something into your phone, feel free to kind of plug these in. I'm not going to ask you to answer them out loud, and I'm not going to ask you to talk to your neighbors about them or anything like that. But um, I'm going to ask you this question, very, very simple. Are you growing in your faith? You just think about that. I just want you to kind of, if you're not taking notes, just plant that somewhere in your mind. Are you growing in your faith? And the second question is this, is why are you growing? Or why would you grow? What's your motivation to grow in your faith. I want you to just kind of tuck those away. Um, my story begins at age 17 with Jesus. I mean, I was born before that, obviously. But uh, my story with Christ begins, I'm a junior in high school, I get saved, and, and my, my learning curve, I knew nothing about church, nothing about scripture, my learning curve was like this. And in three and a half years, I don't know if this is too fast or too slow compared to anybody else's story. Um, I just know that it was a lot for me to, to process, but my, my learning curve was in three and a half years, I was hired by the church that I got saved at and was then teaching the Bible. I went from knowing nothing about scripture to all of a sudden now I've got to teach this thing, right? And uh, I got saved. I was being discipled all through my senior year of high school. Still, though, as I was growing in my faith, some things that I hadn't given over to the Lord, some things that maybe I didn't even know I was supposed to go over to the Lord. Uh, and then my youth pastor took me to a thing called DCLA. Very clever. They have a meeting in DC and LA. Their branding committee was doing a lot of work on that. But uh, DCLA was a youth conference put on by Youth for Christ. My youth pastor, Nick Heisinger, if that name means anything to anybody, he, uh, he, he was involved with Youth for Christ. And so he took us to this thing. He had been bugging me all year to go to this thing. I was a new believer, so I didn't know anything about youth conferences. I was like, you know, I didn't. So, but finally he convinced me and my, my best friend Mario to go. Uh, truth be told, we spent the whole week relatively unsuccessfully just trying to meet girls. It didn't work out for us in that way. But whatever it was about what happened at that week, God brought me to a new level of conviction. He just rocked my world that week. And I came back, I, I came home from Los Angeles that week just with a renewed passion for the growth that God wanted me to have, the life that God wanted me to live, and, and the purposes that God had for me. And so not long after that, I got, I got involved with a ministry called Young Life, and then not long after that, my church hired me to be basically, you know, run their youth ministry. And it was a lot of growth. And, and for, what, for me, what felt like a relatively short season, and, and I was just growing, 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 growing. And I got to this point where I was, I wasn't burned out, but I was just like tired. It just felt like I just kept going, 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 kept learning, learning, doing, doing. And, and it was, I was a little bit exhausted. And I prayed in that moment what I now sort of jokingly but seriously call the stupidest prayer that I have ever prayed. And I, I, I literally on my knees said to God, I said, Lord, this has been great. I love, I love everything you've done to me. But, but I am tired 
of all this growing? When do I just get to be like comfortable in my faith, right? I said, Lord, I just want to be like one of those comfortable Christians. This is what I said to God, right? And God is faithful. For better or for worse, God answered that prayer. And I went into the the first real dry season of my faith. It lasted like a year, and it was miserable. I mean, I just felt like God wasn't even there. I felt like I was praying to a brick wall. I felt dry. I felt cold in my faith. I mean, it was just horrible. If you've ever read the book of Psalms, David talks about times that were similar to this. And and there's even a, a Spanish priest from the 1500s who goes on to write about something that he refers to as the dark night of the soul. Just this, this, this season of spiritual emptiness that you might go through in your faith. And finally, that, that process ended, and I said, all right, Lord, I get it. Never again will I pray that prayer. I get it. I'm, I'm, I'm yours to do whatever you want to do with me. And I'll just say this. After you know, 25-ish years of following Jesus, there's seasons where I've grown fast. There's seasons where I've grown slow. There's seasons where God's just pruning me back so that he can bring new growth, if that makes sense. Um, growth looks different in different seasons. But I just want to say this. A snail's pace is still progress. Right? Like, we're, like, like what God wants to do with us is grow, grow us. And so we just want to be, I think, open to what it is that God has for us. Growth, spiritual growth, growth in our faith is an explicit theme all throughout Scripture. It's, it's really one of the purposes that God gives us Scripture in, in, a part, or in addition to knowing Him. And so that brings us to our text this morning. I'm going to read from the book of 2 Peter, written by the Apostle Peter. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. Peter says, His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and goodness. Through these, He has given us His very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness knowledge, and to knowledge self-control, and to self-control perseverance, and to perseverance godliness, and to godliness mutual affection, and to mutual affection love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But whoever does not have them is nearsighted and blind, forgetting that they have been cleansed from their past sins. God, we are grateful. Grateful because you have given us so much, because you have done so much for us. And yet, God, we stand looking at our own lives, recognizing that there is so much we need to learn, so much we need to grow in, so many things that you want to do in us. Father, as we open your word this morning, may you enlighten the eyes of our hearts to your truth and be transformed by your grace, God. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to talk about three points this morning. I'm going to talk about the giver, the growth, and the goal. And we're going to start out with the giver. So, so for Peter, God is a giver. We're going to look at this. But I read this book years ago. Um, I, was, I was in this theology class, and the teacher asked me to read this book called Free of Charge by a guy named Miroslav Volf. Right? That's a fun one to say. Miroslav Volf. But he writes this book 
about, um, it's basically the whole thesis of his book is that to understand scripture or one way to help you understand scripture and to understand God is to look at God as a giver of gifts. If you can understand God as a giver, then a lot of the Bible makes sense. And this is explicit throughout the, the whole of text. But when you think about it, right, like God has given us, he's given us life. He's given us his word. He's, he gave his only son so that he could give us salvation, right? He's given us the Holy Spirit. Uh, he's given us the church. I mean, just give, it's an endless list, right? There's all these things that God has given us. And so understanding God as giver is an important lens through which we understand the Bible. And this is an explicit and important theme for Peter in this text because he uses this idea of what God has given in two different verses. Verse 3 and then again in verse 4. In verse 3, he says that he's given us everything we need for godly life. And then in verse 4, it says, Through these he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature. So all of this is sort of couched in this idea of what God has given us, what he has provided for us. And so I want to dive into those things. Starting out with everything that we need for a godly life. Notice that he says everything we need and not everything we want. Right? Like, let's just be honest. We all have that one thing or maybe even multiple things that we want God to do for us right now. Right? You might even be thinking of it as I say it. Right? I've got mine. I know what mine is. I'm not going to tell you, just so you know. But, but I know you got yours. I know I've got mine. We've all got that one thing that we just really desperately want for God to give us or God to do for us. And let's just be honest. Like, sometimes our wants are legitimate. Sometimes they're illegitimate. Most of the time, they're just morally neutral, right? Like, like you might want that, that vacation home in Lahaina. Here I am, Lord. I want that too, right? Like, like we all want something like that. But, but, you know, sometimes we want things that are antithetical to the, to the, the work of God in our lives. Sometimes we want things like, like someone that we know and love to be healed from a sickness, right? So our wants can be all kinds of things, but we all have those things that we're just kind of hoping and waiting for God to provide us. And sometimes we kind of even lay it down like, like God, if you just give me this, then we'll be okay. Then I'll be okay. There's some problems with this. I mean, I mean, number one, you need to know that God is not, he's not intent on denying you your wants. He's just, he's just also not intent on fulfilling your wish list, right? He, it's not that he doesn't want you to have good things. It's that he's not Santa Claus. He's not just here to like make sure you get everything you want, right? And the problem that happens in this is because we become focused on these things, even to the point of fixation. Am I right? Even in our prayer life, we'll be like, God, I just really want this. I really want this. I really want this. I've done it. I'm sure you've done it. Uh, we've just become so focused on these things. And then when God doesn't give it or doesn't provide it, rather than seeing God as the giver, we start to see him as the one who's holding back. Right, And so then our perspective of God is starting to change. We're not seeing God for all the good things that he's done. We're seeing God through the lens of the thing that he has not yet given us. And that can mess with our, with our perception of who God is, right? So, so what has God given us? Everything that you need for godly life. He's given us everything we need for a godly life. Now, a better Greek trans or a better translation of the Greek would be found in the ESV. You're welcome, ESV people. Which says, "Amen." Which says, "Life and godliness." They're actually, you know, it actually in the Greek is three separate words: life and godliness. That and so, 
this is what has been promised. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who's a, who's a, a pastor and a, a little anti-Nazi activist in war, Germany during World War II, he says this. He says, God does not give us everything we want, but he does fulfill his promises, leading, leading us along the best and straightest paths to himself. So what he has promised us, what he has given us, is the everything we need for life and godliness. This word life is the Greek word zoe. It literally means like a vital, vibrant, full or vigorous life. It's the abundant life that Jesus was talking about in the Gospels, right? It, it, it's real life. It's not just that your heart is beating and you're physically alive. It's that you now your soul has been given life by the truth of God's word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you have been literally animated to new life. He's given you everything you need for that. Maybe he hasn't given you the one thing, but he's given you what you need for this. And everything that you need for godliness as well. This word godliness in the Greek, it's actually a, a, a fairly complicated word. Um, the best translations would be godliness or piety. Those are two words that we don't often use. Um, I'm sure very few of you have ever used the word piety in a sentence. But, but the reality is, is what this means, if I was to summarize it, what this means is that you would live a life that reflects the truth of who God is. That you would live a life, both your beliefs and your behavior would reflect the truth of who God is. So yes, God hasn't given everything we want, but he's giving us everything we need to have the full and abundant life that he has promised and to live a life to reflect who he is. In other words, he's given you everything you need to live the life that he created you for. Maybe not the life you daydream about, Maybe not the life that you, that you get stuck fixating on as you're throwing, scrolling through Instagram, but the life that he has created you for. So he's given us that. He's given us everything we need for life and godliness. What else? Verse 4. He's given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature. Now this is a jam-packed sentence. I mean, this whole text is jam-packed with theology and with just richness. There's depth in here. But this is a jam-packed one and really kind of gets to some of the crux of what we're talking about. But, but his very great and precious promises, what this literally means, these, these words in Greek literally mean that these are so tremendous and so significant that you can't even put value to them. They are basically invaluable. God's promises are of such a significance that they are priceless. But here's the thing is Peter doesn't, he doesn't then go into a, you know, he doesn't start to delineate all the promises of God. I, I thought about doing that myself, but we don't have time for that this morning. If you want to know what the promises of God are, what I would encourage you to do is start in Genesis, read all the way to Revelation. When you get to the end, you're going to have a pretty good idea of what the, what the promises of God are. But I don't have the time to go over them all right now. Uh, but what I will say is this is that they are so significant to Peter that he makes sure that you realize that all of this is based on what God has promised us. And he says what? That through these promises, we may participate in the divine nature. That's a crazy statement. That's not like a simple statement. That's not an easy statement. Um, that's that's, a, that, that's a, a bit nutty. That we, as broken, foolish people, may participate in the divine nature. I mean, what does that even mean? Right? What does that even mean? 
Well, in the ancient world, there would have been, you know, you would have had like a lot of worldly religions, what we would call historically pagan religions, um, many mythologies as well. So, so some pagan religions actually would have taught, and, and there are actually still some today that would teach this, that, that just by the nature of being human, you have sort of part of God in you, right? Just so you know, that's a very unbiblical thing. That's not what the scriptures teach at all. Um, no matter what you read on the internet, it's not, that has no place in historical Orthodox Christian teaching. But, but there are some, some uh, uh, and it's very different than the image of God, if you're wondering that, but that's another sermon for another day. Um, but the, uh, there are some, some, some religions that believe that, that you sort of have this, just by nature of being human, you have this sort of piece of, of God in you. Um, the mythologies, and a lot of mythologies would have taught that you could sort of like touch God or, or, or maybe become a part of God in some way, right? And so Peter is actually drawing on some of these themes in his text, but what he's saying is, is yeah, there is a participation that takes place in the divine nature, but it takes place because of Jesus. He's anchoring this reality in Christ, Right? But so then what does it mean? What does it mean to participate in the divine nature? Well, the first part is to understand the word divine. The word divine shows up twice in this text, again, showing us that it's important to Peter. First in verse 3, when he talks about his divine power, and then again in verse 4, when he talks about the divine nature. That word divine means something that belongs only to God. It's nobody else's. So when he talks about the divine power, He's talking about a power or a set of abilities that belong only to God. These are things only God can do. You can't do them. I can't do them. Zeus can't do them. You know what I'm saying? Like Captain America can't do them. Like, like only God can do this. And so that same idea is in play in the idea of the divine nature. These are characteristics that only belong to God. These are characteristics that are uniquely God's. And he says that we can participate in these, right? Now, this word participate actually means to partner in something, to kind of come together and be a part of the same thing together. What you need to know is, is, is you don't really become a full partner, just so you know, right? Like God's, he's all-knowing. You don't get to be all-knowing, right? He, he's he's ever-present. You don't get to be that. But God is good. You can get some goodness in your life right? God is patient. You can get some patience in your life, right? What, what, what it's talking about is that there are thoughts, views, feelings, principles, uh, even actions, behaviors, purposes that belong to God that we now get to share in. We now get to participate in. We get to have some of this for ourselves, in other parts of scripture, this is just the process, they would call this the process of becoming sanctified. What, what, what Peter's really talking about right now is that you get to be more like Jesus. You get to be more like Jesus. You get to take on some of the things that apart from knowing Christ, you would never really get to do, which is to be like Christ. We've just unpacked a lot. I mean, this is a lot, right? Like just in this first paragraph, this is, what, this is what Peter is talking about. He's talking about all these different things, and he's jammed all these different concepts into this thing. And we started out talking about, you know, what, you know, how and why and are we growing in our faith? And then we spent all this time talking about God as the giver and what it is that he's given us. And you might start to wonder, well, what's the connection between those two? What's the purpose of doing all that? And, and for Peter, the connection is everything. 
Because first we talk about the giver, and then Peter transitions to talk about the growth. What does God being a giver have to do with growth? Everything. Verse 5, for this very reason. Which reason, Peter? Go back to 3 and 4, right? Go back and read what we just talked about. For this very reason. For the reason of what God has done. For the reason of what God has given you. For the fact that his divine power has given you everything you need for life and godliness. And that now you may participate through his promises in the divine nature and become like Jesus. For this very reason. Because of this. Peter says. Because of this. What are we going to do? We're going to make every effort to add to our faith, goodness, and knowledge, etc., etc. Because of this. This is actually a very normal progression for writers of the New Testament. It's, it's that, and Paul does it a lot, where they lay out a theological framework, like a, like a biblical sort of framework of who God is. This is what God has done for you. And then the transition is, so this then is how you should live. This is what you should do as a result, Right? And we get that backwards all the time because sometimes we think like, okay, I got to do a bunch of stuff so that way God will do a bunch of stuff for me. No, 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 no. That's not the gospel. The gospel is God has already done it. He's done all of it. He did it at the cross. He did it in creation. He did it when he sent the Holy Spirit, when his son raised from the dead, like God's done all of it for you. And now your job is just to respond. Your job is just to look at what God has done and live a life that reflects the truth of who he is. And so he says, our response, the growth that we have, is that we need to make every effort to add these things. Effort. I like that word. I like it a lot. And I think it sometimes surprises us that a word like this would be in Scripture, because oftentimes we talk about how salvation is completely a work of God. And you don't have to do anything to get saved. God does all the work for your salvation. And that's true. Salvation is completely a work of God. There's nothing you could do to earn it, even if you tried. And I dare you to try it. There's just nothing you can do. God has done it all. But sanctification is a process by which we now partner. There's that word again, right? We participate in what God has done to become more like Jesus. And there is, as Peter uses the word, effort. There's something for us to do. There's something for you to do. There's effort to be made. There's intentionality baked into this thing that's required of us. You can, now don't get me wrong, you can just sit down on your faith. You can just warm a chair on Sunday mornings if you want. But God has something greater for you. And if you'd be willing to participate with him, partner with him, jump into this with him, I I really believe you have no idea the great thing that God would do in and through your life. I really believe that, 100%. I've seen it true in my life. I've seen it true in in, in so many other people. You just have no idea the amazing thing that God wants to do in your life. And so sanctification is a partnership. When you take God's promises, his gifts, and his provision, everything he's done, done, and you add our effort, that partnership is what leads to us looking more like Jesus. And so, so Peter says, make every effort to add, to add to your faith. This word add literally means to like equip someone or to equip a group of people. And it carries with it, not just the idea of equipping or, or almost supplying, but there's a sense in here of urgency in this whole, in this sentence, really. It's not just that word add. There's a sense in all of this of urgency 
This idea that we would not just be like, okay, yeah, I'll grow in my faith, but like we would be like, I need to, because of what God has done, I am driven, I am compelled to do everything in my effort to try to be more like Jesus. God has given me all this. How can I waste my life and not give him everything else? And so I'm compelled, I'm urgent, I'm intentional to equip my faith with these things. And so then, of course, Peter jumps into these lists of virtues. And I really, 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 really wanted to preach all eight of these virtues. I thought about it. I thought about long and hard, but, um, you know, math, this math is pretty easy. I started thinking, okay, I could probably do 10, 15 minutes on each of these. Um, you guys are probably going to be hungry by that time. Even if I did five minutes, it would add 40 minutes to the, to the, to the, the message. And, and you guys, you don't want me to do that to you. So... Um, <laughs> I decided, okay, I'm not going to preach all of these, right? I'm not going to preach all of these things, um, but I do want to just talk about them briefly, and then I'll kind of hone in on one. The way Peter reads, uh, writes it, and I'll just read it again, is it almost sounds like there's building blocks. So he says, um, add to your faith goodness, and then to goodness knowledge, and then to knowledge self-control, and to self-control perseverance, and to perseverance godliness, and to godliness mutual affection, and to mutual affection love. It almost sounds like, and and you might be tempted to think like, okay, so do I have to perfect one to get to the other? Like, is it an actual, like a brick wall where I have to lay this brick, get it nice set up, and then I can lay the next brick on top of it? And the answer to that is actually no. This is a literary device that was used a lot in in uh, religious writings of the the ancient world and then also philosophical writings. And so really he's just creating a device by which people who would have heard this in the ancient world could start to remember it over time, if that makes sense you. So it was really just sort of a a literary tool that he's using. Um, So it's not building blocks, right? So you don't have to perfect goodness to get yourself some knowledge, right? That's not what he's saying. He's not saying you have to get all the knowledge in the world. What would that even look like? How do you perfect knowledge in order to get some self-control, right? What he is saying, the point is, is look, here's a bunch of things. Don't just add one thing, add all of these things, All of these things are important. And there's a couple of these lists in the New Testament, right? Like we could even look to Galatians chapter 5 where Paul writes about the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, etc., etc. So so there's all these lists that that the New Testament authors have provided for us. And what they're saying is, is, here are the virtues of the kingdom of God. Here are the virtues of the life of faith. Here are the things that you should be striving to in that sense of urgency and intentionality to add to your faith. Faith is how you got saved, but it's just the beginning. It's not the end, it's just the beginning. And so add to your faith all of these things. Add these virtues to your life. Virtue is a funny word because we don't use that word either very often, but I think that word needs to be kind of reclaimed a little bit in the Western world. I mean, there was a time when, when virtue was explicitly talked about and taught about and celebrated in culture. And I don't know that we really do that anymore. Um, but, but that's what, and actually the word goodness in, in the, the Bible can be translated, in this passage, can be translated virtue. I just think that there's something about us being intentional about adding virtues to our life that creates a different life, and it creates a different culture. So here's the one that I want to hone in on. It's not, it's not that one. It's not the, the idea of virtue, although that one would be worth our time. Any of these would be worth our time. The one that I really just kind of felt compelled to talk about is the idea of knowledge. It's the idea of knowledge. 
This word knowledge in the Greek is gnosis. It's a, it's a silent G, so G-N-O-S-I-S. And, and it, it literally means practical wisdom for life. It basically means knowing how to live, right? It, it's, it's understanding, but understanding in a way that would allow you to live a life of effectiveness, right? Um, Peter uses the word knowledge several times in this text. You can see him in a few different spots. Um, there's actually a couple different uses of the word. So there's, uh, there's one that's, that's a... It's the same Greek root, but it's got, a long, it's got another piece to it. And so it actually means like a more specific, accurate knowledge. It's really more about knowing something very unique and specific. That's the word he uses when he talks about our knowledge of Christ. But when he says, add to your faith knowledge, he's assuming you already have that knowledge of Christ. He's saying, add this knowledge, this practical wisdom about how to live. And my question is, is where would Peter presume that his readers and that us today would get this knowledge? Where does he presume that we're going to, I mean, is it like, do we go to school? Do we watch more YouTube videos, right? Like, I mean, what is, what is it that Peter's asking me to do? Well, the presumption would be that you would have turned to Scripture. Now, Scripture, as the New Testament, was still being formed in the time that Peter's writing this, but the, even in this book, he refers to Paul's writings and refers to them as Scripture. So there's a sense that we see Scripture developing even in the time of the earliest part of the New Testament. Uh, What he's saying is, is you've got to turn to God's word and come to understand what it is that God has said about how to live your life. Uh, Tyler talked about this several weeks ago. He was talking about, and I I might get the days wrong, but he, he was reading some survey that I think it said if you read the Bible three days a week or something like that, it didn't really make as much of a difference. But if you turn the corner and read four days a week, um, and again, if I'm getting the days wrong, I apologize. But if you, if you read a little bit more, all of a sudden there's, there starts to be some life change. Here's the thing. If you're trying to live your life in Christ without understanding God's word, how are you going to live your life in Christ? Does that make sense? If you are trying to live the life that God wants you to, but you're not reading the things that God wants you to know, how are you going to do that? Now, I get it. Some people love to just sit down with the Word and with a cup of coffee and chew on it for as long as they can. I get that. Uh, maybe that's not you. Or maybe you got, maybe you got little kids in your life right now, and, and they wake you up at 5, and you're just go, 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 and you just don't have the space, right? I get it. But we are not lacking opportunity in our culture. There is a proliferation of opportunity for you to take in the Word of God. Right? You can listen to it. You can literally have somebody else read you the Bible in your ears, right? <laughs> Peter had never heard of that. Peter didn't know anything about that, right? They had to get together. Like they would be in a house somewhere. Some guy, like most of the people didn't even know how to read. So you'd have a couple people who probably do. And then they would read the scriptures out loud. That was how they did it. You can have somebody else read the Bible in your ear while you go on a walk or while you jog or whatever it is, while you do the dishes, I just don't think that we can stand before God at the end of all things and say, yes, sorry, Lord, I didn't have enough time for your word. I don't know that we're going to have that excuse. Right? Get yourself in a mission group where you study the word. All right, thank you. (laughs) Find a way. That's my point. You're not going to be able to grow into the person that God has created you to be without understanding the things that he intends you to understand. So we've talked about the giver. We've talked about the growth. I want to talk a little bit about what I call the goal. 
So picking up in verse eight, Peter says, for if you possess these qualities, the qualities we just talked about, the virtues that we just referred to, if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But whoever does not have them is nearsighted and blind, forgetting that they have been cleansed from their past sins. This idea of possessing the qualities in increasing measure, that's a really thick statement that just means if you're willing to continue to grow in these things. That's all he's saying. Just keep growing in these things. All the things I just talked about, the goodness, the, the knowledge, the self-control, the perseverance, the godliness, the mutual affection, the love, et cetera, et cetera. Just, just continue to grow in these things. That's all he's saying. And again, what I would say is fast or slow, it doesn't matter. A snail's pace is still progress. Right. Just continue to pursue these things in Christ. And it will do what? Now, this is the goal. This is what Peter's getting at is it will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you continue to grow in these things, it will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. What Peter's saying is is that your life is meant to produce. Your life is meant to produce something. I don't care how young you are. I don't care how old you are. I don't care what your economic background is. I don't care what your education level is. God created you for good works. That's in the Bible. Your life is meant to produce something. And what he's saying is, in these words, they literally mean idleness and unfruitfulness. So ineffective and unproductive literally means idle and unfruitful. If you continue to pursue these things, remember, we're responding to what God, the good thing that God has done for us. All the gifts that God has provided, we're responding to that. And then out of that, we're, we're, we're desiring the growth that God would have for us. And then as we do that, it will keep us from being idle and unfruitful. It will keep us from being idle and unfruitful. The goal of your faith is for you to grow in Christ and produce something for his kingdom, something for his glory. The goal of your faith is to grow in Christ and for your life to actually do something of significance. And this is where I get back to something that I said earlier, which is that I think most of us have no idea, have, we can't even begin to dream or fathom the significance that God wants to work through you the thing that God wants to do through you, the way he would have you touch others, the way he would have you like really profoundly impact the lives of other people, the way he would have you bring truth or joy or peace or goodness or whatever it is, how God would use you to do something of tremendous significance in this life. We get so bogged down by the day-to-day We get so bogged down by the circumstances. We get so bogged down by the pressures of the world and we forget that God has created us to do something great. That's not a motivational speech, by the way. That's just the Bible. That's just what the New Testament says. It's just the way I read scripture. But he says something really significant at the end of this. He says, but whoever does not have these is nearsighted and blind. That's, that's some strong language. Peter's not playing around right here, right? So he says, whoever does not have these is nearsighted and blind, forgetting that they have been cleansed from their past sins. They're still saved, but they've been forgetting some stuff. 
If you're not growing in these virtues, if you're lacking these virtues, Peter says you're nearsighted and blind. You could read this to say, because how can you be nearsighted and blind at the same time? What he's saying is, is like you're so nearsighted that you're basically blind. You can only see what's right in front of your face, but you have lost sight of the bigger picture of what God is trying to do. You have lost sight of the bigger picture of who God is, what he's done for you, what he's trying to do in you, and then what he would do with your life. You have lost sight of that. And so here's what I would say. Is if you're, in, if, if, if you're here and you're like, hey, yeah, I haven't really been growing in my faith, or maybe you're new to Jesus, and you're thinking to yourself, um, you know, how do I grow in my faith? What does it mean for me to grow in my faith? Right? Or, or maybe you've been around the church for just a long time and things have gotten, it feels a little bit stale. Um, I would say this. Fix your eyes back on Jesus. Get, 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 get back to where you're staring at who Christ is and what Christ has done. And don't move from that position until you get changed. Don't move into that, from that position until you all of a sudden get that inner motivation. But go back to the gospel. Go back to who Christ is and once again see the fact that it was him who made you. It was you who sinned. It was us who sinned, not just you. It was me too. It was us who sinned and it was him who restored us. It was him who sent his son to die on a cross. It was Jesus who raised to life to conquer death and to give us hope. It was all God, what he's done. So if you're feeling stagnant in your faith, if you're just not sure where to go from here, I would say go back to Jesus. Fix your eyes back on him and start from there. And if you're here this morning and, and, and you're hearing all this, maybe you've been thinking about God or who God is in your life uh, or who God could be in your life. Maybe you haven't yet come to understand the reality of who Jesus is. Maybe you haven't really given yourself to Christ. Maybe you haven't really accepted the gifts and come to a knowledge of Jesus. We would invite you to consider that this morning. I would invite you to think about all the good that God wants to do in your life. Look at the world and all the bad. Look at all the destruction. Look at the hopelessness. And then look at Jesus when he invites you to peace and joy and grace and eternity. I want to end by uh, sharing a story, and it's a story that I've been struggling with how to tell because I just can't do justice to the story. It's a longer story than I even have time for, right? I have a minute and 50 seconds, and I promise not to take more than 10. That's not true. I don't promise that. But, but um, and the band can come up at this point if you guys want. Uh, but, but it's about a man who, who, truthfully, I've heard of for a long time in my life, and I, he's a historical figure. I'd never really known who or what he did um, up until quite recently, a man named Booker T. Washington. And if you know anything about this, this guy, he is a phenom. I mean, he's just an amazing man who did amazing things. Um, he ends up being a, a, a lead, like a leading figure in the world of education of black people in the, in the kind of the post-Civil War era. So he was born into slavery um, just before, probably about eight to ten years prior to um, the Emancipation Proclamation. And so all of a sudden, he, he is a young man. He's like, he's like 12, maybe. He and his family are freed. They, they end up, him, his brother, and his stepdad end up working in a coal mine in West Virginia. He's like 12, working in a coal mine in West Virginia. 
And while he's working there, and he talks about it, he just talks about how, how dismal and dark and horrible it was, basically. Um, but, but he talks about how it was in that coal mine that he heard a bunch of other guys talking about a school that had been started by missionaries in Virginia, the other Virginia, for emancipated slaves. And he's 12 years old, and he decides in that moment, I'm going to go to that school. He just like, he just decides like in that moment, like I'm going to go to that school. No letter of application, you know, no GPA, never took the SATs, nothing like that, right? Like he's just like, I'm going to go to this school. So he works in the coal mines for a few months before he, uh, he finds out that there's a job working for a lady who's looking for like a, like a housekeeper, like a house servant. So he goes to do this job and what he finds out is that a bunch of people have tried to work for this lady, but she's kind of crazy. She's so particular and fastidious and mean. She wants no dirt, nothing in her house. She wants everything in perfect order, complete, you know, just everything has to be without disrepair. She just wants it perfect. Well, it just so happens that Booker T. Washington has probably the greatest work ethic of any person you could ever meet or know about. And so it just so happens that he's able to, he's able to do what she wants him to do. And, and, and they actually in short time become friends and she becomes an avid supporter of his desire to better himself through education. And so he just continues working, continues working. And then finally he decides, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna, and this, this is where the story gets a little bit crazy because he, he's like probably about 15 now and he has to find a way to get from her house in West Virginia to this place in Virginia, which is, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles away. He travels overnight by a horse-drawn carriage. They stop at a place, because he's black, the, the house, uh, the, the innkeeper or whatever, wouldn't let him stay inside. So he ends up walking all night long in the West Virginia mountains so that he doesn't freeze to death. I mean, this guy is just so committed. He will not give up. So then he finally gets to Richmond, Virginia, which is still 80 miles away from the school. He gets there, he has no money, no, no food. He sleeps his first night there under a man-made wooden sidewalk. Gets up the next morning, finds a shipyard where the, 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 the captain or whoever the shipmaster was allows him to shovel pig iron. Truth be told, I don't know what pig iron is. I might Google it later. But he has to shovel pig iron for, and he ends up doing this for days and days and days, still every night sleeping under the sidewalk just so he can get enough money to feed himself and then get passage to the school. And the story just continues to go crazy. And, 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 here, here's the crazy, here, here's, here's one little other tidbit to it. He gets to the school, he's completely disheveled, right? He's been on like a week's long journey. He's filthy, his clothes are the same clothes that he's been sleeping under the sidewalk with, right? The whole bit. And he shows up to the school and he's fired up. He's like, I'm gonna be in this school. The lady who's doing the registration for the school looks at him and basically says something to the effect of like, we're not sure that you're the type of person we wanna have in our school. So he has to sit there. Meanwhile, other people are coming to register for school and he's watching them as they register, but he's just sitting there. He waits there for hours all day. And at the end of the day, she says, hey, we got this room adjacent to here. We need somebody to sweep it. Can you sweep? He had spent two years working for the crazy lady. Did he know how to sweep? He goes in, he sweeps the thing three times, dusts it, 
four times. I'm just going to say this right now. I have never cleaned a room like that in my entire life. I have never, ever swept anything, probably more than twice, right? Like three times is like, whoa. But, but he, he cleans this thing so good because he was convinced that if I do this right, if I do this well enough, they're going to let me in this school. And guess what? He was right. She comes, actually a different lady comes in and says, maybe you are the type of person we want at this school. And so he gets into the school, and this is where I can't really get into the rest of the story, but he goes on to, to do incredibly well at that school, gets sent to Tuskegee, Alabama, where he ends up starting a school. He ends up being the, basically the, the, the department head or the, maybe even the, the, kind of the president of that school. And him and another guy end up going on to start thousands of schools across the U.S., educating more than a half million people. I mean, he's an amazing man. And the reason, when I, when I heard this story, the reason it struck me in relation to this, this text is because of the work that he was willing to put in to do something great with his life. Now, this story that I've just told you doesn't sound spiritual, but I will say Booker T. Washington was a believer. And so his story, I'm sure, was very spiritual for him. But this is what he said. This is actually what he said to himself as he got to the school, probably 15 years old, standing in front of this building, He says this, and he writes this in his autobiography. I resolve to let no obstacle prevent me from putting forth the highest effort to fit myself to accomplish the most good in the world. I mean, that's almost word for word for what Peter just told us to do. I have resolved to let no obstacle prevent me from putting forth the highest effort. I will do anything it takes to fit myself, here, equip myself, add to my life and my faith virtue to do what? Accomplish the most good in the world. And guess what? He did. And guess what? In Christ, you can too. Church, here's what I believe. I believe that God has some great things for you. I believe that God has great things for us. It may not, I hate to disappoint you, it may not be all the things you want, but it is all the things you need to live the life that God has created you to live. Father, again, we thank you. You are so good and you have done so much. You have given us everything, everything we need. And God, yes, sometimes we lose sight of that. Sometimes we we get, we get fixated or distracted by things, God, but at the core, Lord, we remember in this moment, we remember this day that you have given us everything we need to live the life that you had created us to live. God, I pray for our church. I pray for this this, this body of people. I pray that you would continue to do every great thing that you have in them, in us, for your kingdom. God, would you grow us in these virtues? Would you grow us in every virtue that reflects the truth and the goodness of who you are? And Lord Jesus, We pray this inside of you and in your name. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the Mission Church Podcast. If you enjoyed it, make sure you subscribe so you can keep up on our weekly sermons. If you're in the Bay Area, we invite you to come join us on Sundays. You can find all the details on our website at missionchurchca.com. Again, thanks so much for listening, and we hope to see you soon.